This morning we'll be reading from uh, Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20. Although we'll be reading the end of Matthew, we are not finished with Matthew. Uh, and just, uh, Lord, may you bless uh, this morning's reading and hearing of your word. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the trustworthy word of God. Appreciate you reading that. Okay, so we are jumping ahead a little bit because of the value in our church's calendar to what we have going on over the next several weeks. In a few weeks, we will be saying goodbye to James and Kate Barragon as they head overseas to do missions. We will be, Lord willing, talking through church planting over the next couple weeks, and even as we host Paul Pitts next week, the goal is that our church will be thinking through strategically how to reproduce other good churches. When we look at this text, this text is about the work and the mission of the church. And I think sometimes we lose sight of this a little bit. We lose sight of what church life is about. And part of it's American culture. And there are so many ways we as a culture uh, interpret the church through the lens of cultural values that we miss what the church really is and what it's to be doing. Um, I, I know that at times we lose sight of, of function, we lose sight of purpose in all sorts of different things. Uh, sometimes companies will do this. They kind of lose sight of what they exist for. Uh, sometimes households will do this. I mean, what does your house exist for? Most of you probably don't even think like that. You don't even think of those categories. Um, I'm always reminded of this with various elements in my life, but one of the things I remember from growing up is my grandparents and their furniture. You normally think of, of the purpose of, of furniture, particularly in this case, it was my grandparents' dining room chairs. Now, I don't know how, how your grandparents used to live, but my grandparents left the plastic on. You know, like the plastic that it gets shipped in so that it doesn't damage in shipping? We are talking for decades. I can remember at my grandfather's funeral, there's plastic remaining on one chair out of all the dining room chairs. Now, what is that plastic for? It's to protect the upholstery. That's what it exists for, to protect the upholstery, namely during shipping, not during eating. But they left that plastic on so that you never saw the nice, clean upholstery underneath. In other words, the thing that was meant to protect so that it was delivered pristine to the customer was left on so the customer actually never enjoyed the pristine. 
right? They never enjoyed what was underneath it, the fabric itself. I think, honestly, it was two decades that that plastic had lasted on that singular kitchen chair. Most of the other ones through the, the course of that time, when it got ripped or really ratty, then they'd pull it off, and they would expose that upholstery to the danger. Probably grandkid danger, but I, I think sometimes as church people, we're those chairs, we exist in this state of protectionism. We exist to, to be comfortable. We exist to do church well, whatever that means. And we have our own definitions. We think of church life as something that, that we, we enjoy and it's for us. The answer, simply put, is no, it's not. And we need to change and reshape our thinking. Jesus, in this passage, is he's about ready to leave this earth gives his disciples the DNA of good church work. And I want to I prove that point. I've, I've had debates before with uh, godly people who don't see the church in this text. So let me show you that the church is in this text, implicitly at least, and then walk through the text. I just want to give you three kind of DNA markers of the church here. But before we get there, let me prove to you this is church work. So you come down to the text in verse 18, Jesus says to them, all authority, and he begins to explain what we call the Great Commission. And often I've heard this preached as a missions verse. And it's not not a missions verse, okay? So, so let me set that aside. But it's not primarily a verse about missionaries. It's a verse about the church. Or a verse is about the church. It says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now there are multiple commands here, or actually there's a singular command with multiple command force type of words. So the first one is go. The second one is make disciples. The third one is baptize them. And the last one is to teach them. Okay, the relation of those is, is, in terms of Greek, is something like this. The first two kind of have a command force, even though it's only the second one that has a command linguistically in Greek. So it's something like this. We need to go. We need to make disciples. The way we do that is by baptizing and teaching them. Okay, I want to take those last two ones and prove to you it's church stuff. Who does baptizing? It's not individuals. It's always an agent of the church or the church itself that governs that. So even when you have someone like Philip, Philip was an agent of the church in Jerusalem when he baptizes that Ethiopian in, in that one moment of evangelism that the Holy Spirit takes him to. But the church is always the agent that defines, protects, and propagates the gospel. It's never individual agents. It's not individual believers. So, so we're not talking about a street preacher who's going out and proclaiming the gospel as able to fulfill this because he doesn't have the context with which to baptize people. Okay, so street preaching is not the Great Commission. It may be a component of it. But just like a wheel is not a car, neither is street preaching the Great Commission. Now, not only is it baptizing, I want you to take, go to the second command. They're teaching them to observe what? All. That's a comprehensive task, right? Like, if I teach you all that God has commanded, this is not the task of moments. 
This is not the task of a conversation during you know, break time at work where I can just unload for you all that Jesus has commanded with its implications for your obedience and the grace that supplies your power to do it. This is not something I am capable of, nor any of you as individuals. Jesus implicitly is giving this command to a community of people that are to do this in the context of Christian community, we name the church. It's an organized group of people around the person and the doctrine of Christ being baptized in his name as followers of him for the sake of his name who are reproducing, reproducing in others that same commitment to obey all of his commands. That's the church. Okay, so this command here, is a command to do what? Church work. Who's the command given to? Well, this starts to get convicting. So let me, let me walk you through these three components of DNA and, and spend a little bit of time pastoring at the conclusion then. First, church work is founded on the exalted position of Christ. Church work is founded upon the exalted position of Christ. When you look into verse 18, he says, all authority. In fact, the all is one of the central uh, motifs, I think, of this text. If you look at verse 18, all authority is given to me. Therefore, we go into all nations and we teach people to obey all that he commands. But it starts with this foundational point that Jesus Christ has been given all authority. Where? Not just on this earth, but in heaven and on earth. Uh, this is the same type of authority that actually comes to full consummation in Philippians 2.10, where every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That would include Satan himself. All people, all beings with intelligence will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. On the basis of his already purchased exaltation, Although he's not fully exercising it, not every knee is bowing yet, not every tongue is confessing yet, but he has the right to it. He has the authority of it. This is the basis by which he commands the church to do its work. Now, this is essential. Maybe I could say it this way. This is us getting deputized. Right? This is us. It, every time I think the word deputy, I think Barney Fife. With one bullet in his gun. He's a deputy, and he has authority over Mayberry. Okay, so, so the question then might be something like this. If Jesus Christ is giving you your Barney Fife badge, your question should be, what's my Mayberry? Right? What's my Mayberry? So we look into this, and all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so where's his authority? What's his, what's his domain? What's his jurisdiction? What is it? If you said the world, you didn't quite get it all. Everything. All of the created universe is his. There is not one molecule in the farthest reaches of all of God's creation floating out there a billion light years away over which the king of kings does not declare, that is mine. There is not one immaterial thought, because thoughts aren't material, there is not one thought 
in your head over which Jesus Christ doesn't proudly declare and demand that it be his for his glory. Not one. Which means not only do we sin when we rebel against that in external obedience, but when our thoughts and our feelings don't align with the glory of Christ, we are rebelling. Which means sometimes anxiety, fear, pride, anger, complaint, these are not sins anyone else sees except the King of Kings who declares that those are his as well. The work of the church is founded on the exalted position of Christ that declares that the world, the universe, all created beings, everything not the Father and the Spirit is his. So, he sends us to all nations. And this is why all of his commands must be taught. So all nations indicates that we enter into cultural engagement and we don't grant to someone cultural rebellion. There are some things, beliefs, behaviors, images, communications of sorts that are inherently rebellious against our king. And whether or not you own them as part of your culture or another does, we declare to those cultures they are wrong. So for example... In our culture, general science is now telling us that a baby doesn't have life until it's born. Jesus Christ does care about that, and he indicates to us that we must call culture to embrace his opinion. So, let me see if I can give a broader analogy. I have at times been in the moment of sharing with someone the truth of Jesus Christ, accused of being arrogant. And it would go something like this. So you believe that if I don't believe in your God, the one you see in your Bible, the Western God, that somehow I'm condemned to hell. That seems super arrogant. Somehow, me reaching into their culture and telling them that their false belief needs to be brought into subjection to Jesus Christ is Westernism is an arrogance. Now, I've got to both agree and disagree. Here's the arrogance. Sometimes we try to evangelize to Westernism. Right? Like, we try to export our hymns, our thinking, our culture. We don't need to export Westernism. Jesus Christ does not say, all authority is given unto me, heaven and earth, therefore make people like the U.S., He says, go to them and teach them what I have commanded. Which, by the way, does not include things like suit jackets. So, those aren't particularly godly. Nor ungodly. That's not my point. It's like, we can tend to tell Africans, until you have suit coats like us and sing our songs, you haven't gotten there yet. But that's not the point. The point is, if Jesus Christ is exalted above all, All the world, all of the universe as its king, he demands that people within their cultural context become like him in those cultural expressions. Not that they become like us in ours. That's a significant thing. But it gives us boldness then when we engage in Asian culture or an African culture or a man in the United States who has some element of a subculture and he says, how dare you tell me not to be like me and my folk? 
that we need to be careful that we actually give Jesus commands, not our culture. But the basis of this is not us. It's the supremacy of our exalted Savior. And it is pride for you to suggest otherwise. In other words, going back to my conversation, when someone says, how dare you try to foist upon me your Westernism, you arrogant man? It's genuine humility to say the reason I do so is because the King of Kings tells me so. And I will obey him in the face of scorn. That is a humbleness. It is humble to get shame for the sake of your king. It is God-fearing and wise to do so. But this tells me that Jesus Christ wants me to do this. He sends, I mean, you think about how weak the church is right now. Here he is, Jesus is talking to his leaders, all 11 of them. Like, if there is a time in which the, the baton of, of trust and doctrine and church life might get handed off and dropped, it's when there's only 11 men on the other side. Right? Like, if, if this week pastors are going to a Brazilian steakhouse together, which sounds really good, and our car gets T-boned and all of us die, this church will be here next Sunday. Right, this church does not rise and fall on a few men. But here, Jesus is on a hill in Galilee. There's 11. There's only 11. And he's calling them to go to other cultures, other languages, other people. And he's entrusting to them this fragile, tiny, small group. A culture penetrating, sin-breaking, globe-expanding message, right? How can he have the audacity to say that? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. That's the foundation. It means that every creature is morally obligated to obey Jesus, whether they know his name or not. It means every creature is obligated to think godly thoughts, whether they know him or not. It means all of creation, all of this earth, is Jesus' kingdom, whether or not they yet know he's the king. Our job is to help them know. Our job is to carry that message to them. Number one, first mark of DNA here, the church and church work, let's say, is founded upon the exalted position of Christ. Number two, church work is leading people to the person of Christ. Okay, church work is leading them to the person of Christ. I'm going to take you back to the text. Look in verse 19 with me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Now, there's some debate. For those of you who are Greek nerds, going is kind of an attendant circumstance, which means it borrows the imperative. So there's two command force words here, go and make. It's not make as you're going. That's an inappropriate translation. Okay, the point is, is that you and I are obligated by Jesus to do two things. What are they? Go and disciple. Go and disciple others. Go and disciple others. What are we to do? Okay, so I want to just ask you a question. How come so few are going? Okay, so let me, let me, let me finish reading and come back to that point. I think it actually needs to be heard really well. Jesus says to the disciples, Go. 
make disciples. Baptize them. Verse 20 now. Teach them to keep. Right? That's what it means. Obey, keep, what? All I have commanded. What commands has he just given? Go. We read this verse and we're like, hey, you should go to the mission field. Okay, before you bump your neighbor, how come you're not going? How come you read this verse that says, to you, go, and you think in your mind, and you hear in your heart, you should go? Like, like how do you wrestle that one theologically to avoid getting hit between the eyes with go? So maybe you're thinking, well, I'm not prepared. I just want to read. My, my dad was like, he was a super gentle man, but he spoke fairly firmly. He would say something like this. What's wrong with you? Your leg broke? <laughs> like, I mean, just imagine. Mark, clean your room. Well, I would, Dad, but I want to eat breakfast first. That wouldn't roll in our home. Like, son, go clean your room. And he would like drop that tone. It's like, oh, I better go clean my room. So, so I'm talking to a group of church folk. And we read a text like this. And immediately within our consciousness, we have 18 reasons why we don't get to obey that command. You know what those are called? <laughs> I love the whispering. Excuses. You know, it doesn't fly before the king of kings, his lame excuses. Now, does Jesus call every single person to all leave the place where they're living and go to the nations? Not necessarily. But I just want to start in the question, why you think you don't have to obey this command? You better have a good reason. Who is supposed to go? Who is the first Christian missionary? I'm going to keep pressing on the point here for a second. Who is the first Christian missionary? His name is Jesus, who came to this world as a missionary. Right? He entered into and made us his people for the sake of our salvation, that we might know the message of grace. How much did that cost him? It cost him his heavenly glory for a while. It cost him the shame of owning humanity for the rest of eternity. It cost him his life. He was broken down as a tired, beat up, shamed man who was tortured till he died. So perhaps you were thinking, well, I don't know that I can handle the difficulties of missions. I don't know that the hardship of missions is something that I'm ready for. I, I don't, I'm not very good with other cultures or other languages. You know, I just really like American food. And I don't know if I could handle eating crickets. I don't know what your excuse is. But if you're starting with the idea that it's going to be expensive to go to missions, you are correct. And Jesus shamelessly tells you to suck it up, bear the cost of the cross, and go. He doesn't tell you the cost is a reasonable reason to not go to missions. Cost is irrelevant. Get there if the cost is keeping you back. I think what Romans, 6, uh, Romans 13, excuse me, would remind us all, or excuse me, Romans, I'm going to get this right at some point, Romans 12, 
is to think of yourself with a sober assessment. So there are some people who should remain within the church God has called them to, in the state or wherever they're called. And there are some who should consider going. But if you're going to look at this passage and read this verse and hear Jesus whisper to your ear, go, you better make sure he is telling you, go to your neighbor in Bakersfield before you resist the call to go to your neighbor in a place like Ukraine or a place like Southeast Asia or East Africa. I don't know where the Lord would call you, but if we're going to teach others to obey everything he commands, I think one of the ways we should do that is by obeying what he commanded us. I mean, what type of example is that? It's like, hey, come, come with me, follow everything Jesus says to, except for that first, like, command right there, that, that one, let's skip that one. Don't worry about going. Okay, so lead people to the person of Christ. I want you to hear that word go before we move on. We've contemplated church planting. I can tell you, on a personal level, one of the things that really, really causes me not to want to do church planting is the fact that 30-some of you will leave us. But, like, I start thinking, who? And then I think, no, not them. Not them. Not them. Not them. So here, here what your pastor is struggling with in that is like, I see you commanded to go, and I'm like, no, stay. <laughs> right? Like, like, that's what I want. But, but that is not the call of missions. The call of missions is not to say, this is enjoyable and comfortable for you. The call of church work is to say, this is about us doing what Christ has called us to do. Christ has called us to be like him. And he went from heaven came to the people in need and gave them the ministry of grace and brought salvation to them through his death. And then he tells us to come and be his disciples. So what does that word disciple mean? I, I, I think this is the simple analogy. I'm sure I've given it before, so please don't start rolling your eyes when I turn into the old man who's like giving an illustration is the one I've given you 30 times over the last 40 years. Well, at least you just don't act like I'm that guy because I am that guy. Okay, so this is a spiritual game of follow the leader, right? That, that's what it means to be a disciple, is I become like the person who leads me, and I become his disciple. So when Jesus says, go and make, make disciples, he is centering our instruction on whom? Himself. He's saying, go and make people into followers, not of the Holy Spirit, not of God the Father, not of Peter, but of Jesus. He's saying, go and help people to follow me. And so we put our foot where he puts his foot. We live like he lived. We sacrifice like he sacrificed. We are willing to do what he does, and we follow our leader. That's what it means to disciple is we get people to follow the person of Christ. The work of the church is about Jesus. I mean, nothing more than telling the whole world, come see Jesus and be like him. Trust in him and walk with him. Know and follow Jesus. That's the work of the church. 
Man, we can complicate things, but then sim- simplistic forms, that's what we do. That's our call, to tell people to follow Jesus. Jesus would say something like this, I am the way, the truth, the life. Those are exclusive claims. And in case you miss it, he then adds on, no one comes to the Father. That's a euphemism for heaven, salvation, and all of grace. No one comes to the Father except through me. I think we could, if we bring it into this text, say something like this. As we call people to the person of Christ, we are calling them to the exclusive place of saving grace. The exclusive person of sanctifying grace. So that our church's central message is come to Jesus. That's it. And as we send missionaries overseas, I don't know what missions look like in Southeast Asia. I know that at the end of the day, the essential work of that missionary is to do church work where he says or she says, come to Jesus and be like him. Be sanctified to be more like him. This is the work of the church. It is Christ-centered because as we do this, we hold up the example of Christ. We glorify the person of Christ, and we help all to see him that they can be like him, saved by his mercy, redeemed in his grace. That's the work of the church. That's what we do. That's what our missionaries do. That's what you should do with your family. Notice the centrality of Christ in that thought. Discipleship is about Jesus. It's about the exalted Christ getting exaltation in individual lives. So how do we do this? What's the manner we do this? We baptize them and we instruct or teach them. So we baptize them. Notice it's a triune baptism. It's not merely Christ. We baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So while the church is the bride of Christ and it centers on the message and the person of Christ, it is not to the exclusion of the triune God. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that they all are necessary for us to worship and love and adore and trust in and receive grace from. I know this is a confusing sentence. They are the one God. When we say triune, we mean tri as in three, unity as in one. There are three persons, and that's why they have names. The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Singular, divine essence. One God. And so for us to merely be about the Son or the person of Jesus to the exclusion of the others is something Christ deliberately and explicitly bans as unchristian. All right. So we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son. Who gets baptized in Scripture? You know how many people get baptized in Scripture by name? It's only a very few. And the one that's most surprising is Jesus. So he says, make disciples, and then he says, baptize them. He showed us in baptism what to do as we enter into a life of following him. The first thing you do is the first thing he does in his public ministry is get baptized. We are baptized to show identity. We're baptized to show our repentance from sin. We're baptized to show our unity with Christ in his death and his resurrection. Baptism is this way in which 
we show the world we are for the Lord and his. And then he says teaching. What do we teach? This is impressive. We teach all he has commanded. Every once in a while as parents, we give throwaway commands. We really don't mean or, or maybe we wouldn't enforce you know, something like, you better get an A on this test or you will never see daylight again. <laughs> really? You going to go with that one? <laughs> Let me just see you enforce that bad boy. You're not going to do that. Can you imagine that in Jesus, all of his ministry and all of the recorded texts of Scripture, he is telling us that there is not one command he gave that was a throwaway? There was not one exaggeration. There was not one important word out of his mouth. In fact, in Matthew 24, he says, heaven and earth may pass away, but my Words will never pass away. That's an incredible claim. To say your words will never pass away, heaven might, earth might, but my statements, my commands, the obligation that they put on the shoulders of all humanity, that obligation and my word will never pass from this world. That's an incredible authority. It's the same authority that commanded the sun to shine and it obeyed. It's the same command that, or it's the same authority that commanded fish to exist and out of nothing the oceans were filled with fish. That's power. I don't even comprehend it. To say to nothing, I want there to be fish. So fish start existing. The world sees its oceans are filled with life, teeming with it. That's next level power. That's power only our divine creator has. And Jesus gives to himself that same type of power when he says to us, all I command is for all of creation, for all of time. And with that, he morally obligated us. And now if we cross the line of his commands, we sin. If we cross the line of his moral imperatives, we sin. If we cross the line and rebel against his example, it's sin. How much integrity and power do you have to have that by merely doing something, you obligate all of humanity to do it too? You know what this tells me about the church? How much did Jesus love the church? How much? I want you to process this. Ephesians 5 tells us he loved it so much that he gave himself for her. He died for her sake, and even now as he lives, he purifies her and sanctifies her through the ministry of the word. You know what this means? If his example is authoritative, and it is, that's what discipleship means, then how much must I love the church? Enough to. Oh, I know you know what I'm thinking. You just don't want to admit it. Enough to die for her. If the choice came down between being poor forever and not being able to gather with God's people, I hope you chose gathering with God's people at the risk of your own financial poverty. If the choice was to never eat again or never gather again, you should choose never eat. 
If the choice was to never see a loved one again or never gather with God's people again, by the way, I hope that means all your loved ones are in the church so you can get both, but if it were one or the other, you choose God's people. Jesus Christ chose them over his own life. Our affection and loyalty for the people called the church must be so profound and so rich. And then here's the call of ministry then. Church work is to go to the nations, to go to other people, to stretch within our own community, to leave behind comfort, family, and friends, to expand that group of people we call the church. We should be willing to lose any personal treasure for the sake of the thing Christ treasures above his own life. That's what a disciple does. The DNA of the church is founded upon the exalted position of Christ. It is leading people to the person of Christ. And finally, it's dependent upon the grace of Christ. So dependent upon the grace of Christ. There's this little phrase that I feel like gets, it's kind of like in a movie where you have like the end scripted on it and everyone's like turning it off halfway through the like, we just feel like it's this unimportant throwaway phrase like goodbye. I want you to read in verse 20 with me. After we teach them to observe all that I've commanded you, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That verse is about grace. That verse is about just the sweetness of our Savior calling us to this unimaginably big task. How many nations are supposed to get missionaries? All nations. And the task of church work within those nations is overwhelming for any individual. Right? He's calling these uneducated Galilean men, these hillbillies, to go to the educated places like Greece, where rhetoric and wisdom are the life of the culture, calling them to places of wealth like Rome, where Half of the population was exorbitantly wealthy, the other half is slaves, and they are to give the gospel to people educated and impoverished. People who stay as slaves, even as Christians. How does the gospel get to these dark corners? How does it get all the way to India and all the way to Spain? Jesus is telling them so much in this last little phrase. You know, the presence of God had been located at the temple in Israel's history. Right? God dwells in the holy place. Actually, the holy of holies, the holiest place. In order to see the grace of God, there was this recognition that it flowed through Israel. And this is why you have someone like Daniel. When he's praying in Babylon, he prays towards Jerusalem. Not simply because he loved Israel, but because that's where God dwelled. To leave that promised land in some way was to like leave home base where God dwelt, where grace flowed from, where you gathered to worship with God's people. So when Jesus says, go to the nations, a Jewish conscience might say something like, and leave God? Leave, the, leave, leave, leave everything? Leave grace? And Jesus says, no. It should be no surprise that when Matthew begins this work of writing this piece of history and 
spiritual ministry of Christ in the book of Matthew, he starts with this idea of Jesus Christ being Emmanuel, God with us. And now he ends, God with us. Not confined to a temple, not confined to Jerusalem, not confined to a building. Jesus is God with us. The one who spoke the world into existence is with us. And he's not with us merely as a buddy. He's not with us merely to push away loneliness. He is with us as both comfort and power. That is, that we might be able to go into the nations and accomplish things that we have no capacity to accomplish in our own strength, that we might be able to carry a message that has no power in its words, but power in the person it brings you into communion with. Right, right. The syllables of the gospel do not save anyone. What saves people is Jesus Christ. The words of the gospel message point them to who he is, how he saves, so that their faith might be in him and that he might break the power of sin. And what is your hope that a few words will move someone from death to life? What is your hope that a few words will break the power of enslaving sin and bring freedom to the conscience and life to the soul and forgiveness to the guilty? What's your hope? It has got to be the power of Christ. And here he's telling the disciples, I go with you. This is the only time in Greek this phrase occurs in the whole New Testament. Literally, it's this. All the whole of every day. Or all the whole of the day is the point. Not just in moments of spiritual ministry, but the whole of every day. I, that is incredibly comforting to these men who probably felt abandoned at times, who did not know what was coming. Persecutions, imprisonments, stonings, rejection, mockery, shipwreck, beatings, cultural scorn. All of it's coming for them. And like a tidal wave unseen, it will crash on them in the coming months. What is their hope when the wave of cultural hate floods their soul? Jesus is with me. I don't know what's coming, but we will endure because Jesus is with me the whole day, every day. Jesus is always with his servants to supply grace, to give strength, to give victory over unconquerable foes. Who can't resist the power of hell? His name is Jesus. It is not our name. How could you go into a dark country that knows not our Lord and give them a gospel and hope that there is a convert there is Jesus is with you? What causes you to be willing to share the gospel to the guy who has it all? The multimillionaire businessman who's achieved success and he's only 32. I know he needs Jesus. Jesus can give light to that man's blind eyes that think money is the answer. What do you tell a 
elderly woman who's lost two husbands and is lonely and broken and bitter. You know what she needs? She needs the Lord Jesus Christ to save her. She does not need a better husband who can live longer than her. She needs Jesus. It is interesting to note that as Moses is ending his ministry and ready to die at 120 years old, handing off the ministry of leadership to Joshua, he says these words. Listen carefully. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or tremble before them. For the Lord, your God, is the one who is going with you. He will not fail you or abandon you. Then Moses called out to Joshua in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you will accompany these people to the land that the Lord promised to give their ancestors, and you will enable them to inherit it. The Lord indeed is going before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Now think think of what's happening in the world for Joshua. Moses is dying. He inherits a ragtag group of a couple million people that is nothing like a fighting force. They are fickle in their faith. They are weak in military power. They are vagabonds in terms of fortress and military might. And they are rabble. And Joshua is supposed to take this group of vagabonds into the promised land against established military forces with fortresses and win. Would you be afraid? You saw how they treated Moses, and you're like his flunky. You're like, you're not quite as good as Moses. You know what I'm saying? And you got to take them over. And you got to lead them into this place. And they're struggling with idolatry. They're struggling with frustration for 40 years having, having been in the wilderness. They want to just rest. They don't want to fight. They're tired and they're worn. And now you're in charge. Yay, Joshua. You notice how many times Moses told him God is with you? Be strong, be courageous. The Lord your God is going with you. He will not fail you. He will not abandon you. Then he repeats it. The Lord is indeed going before you. He will be with you. He will not fail you. He will not abandon you. Be strong. Be courageous. Come forward, 1,500 years. Just like Moses is passing off the scene, Jesus is about ready to leave. His ragtag vagabond group of 11 men only are with him. And he gives them this commission to go forth. And he says, I will never leave you. What is the hope that Crossway can reproduce another church? Without Jesus, there is none. We are not so cool that everyone wants to come and be like us. We are not so smart that people say, come, let us learn of your wisdom. We are not so fun that people are like, yeah, I want that church. Now, if that be our appeal, let's just close shop right now and be done. Here's what we have. We have Jesus. And we hold him high. And we exalt him in our personal lives. We exalt him in our public ministry. 
and we call people to believe in him and be saved from their sin. This is all we have. But if we have Jesus, then he is the one that energizes our preaching with power. He's the one that invigorates our conversations to give hope to the lost through Jesus Christ. So if we are to plant a church, it must be a church that's committed to building its theological foundation on the exalted Christ, calling people to pursue the person of Christ, and totally dependent on the grace of Christ's presence with them every moment. And we must be sending missionaries to the field. Go to the nations. I kind of wish I said, stay in your nation, because that's what would make me comfortable. This is a command to go. If you're under the age of 100, you should be thinking, I might go. I know that kind of sounded silly. So let me say it again. If you're under 100, you might be thinking, and you should be thinking, maybe I should go. You have a heartbeat, and you know Jesus. Tell me why you don't want to obey your Savior in going. Because he might call you to go next door. Let's, let's be clear. He's not calling us all to leave our place. But you better wrestle with this text, particularly those of you who are gifted towards church work leadership stuff. You should be thinking, maybe I should go. Maybe you're going across town. Maybe you're going across the globe. But let's just look at these commands here. Go. Make disciples. The manner we do this is by bringing them into relationship with Christ, baptizing them, and instructing them to walk with their Savior in every command he's given. That is not complex, but it is hard. And so Jesus calls us to the high calling of church work. Every one of us is called to church work. And he says, hey, none of you are capable. None of you are sufficient. So I will make you so. I go with you all, the whole day. When does that stop? The end of the age. So let me, let me I said I want to do some pastoring here, so I'm going to just give you kind of one thought in two parts. I think this means our church must be deeply committed to spending itself on local and global missions to lose sight of local missions for the sake of global missions would not help. To lose sight of global missions for the sake of local missions would not help. Or be obedient, maybe I could say. Now, some of you, if you're like me, have a deep burden for the United States, particularly for the West Coast. This place is dark. Have you ever thought that maybe God called you here because you're supposed to be a light in darkness? Not run to places that are gray? So hear that clearly, Californians. Stop trying to go to greener pastures that are less worldly. Simply because they're less worldly. The Lord calls you to Texas. May the Lord bless Texas. Do church work there. I think our church should sacrifice deeply for the cause of church work. So let me give you two ways that this costs us. And I'm trying to tell you with all pastoral grace you should think me you should give lots of money and lots of you 
sending missionaries is not cheap. Now, I say that as a pastor who thinks that when I say the word cheap, I think about losing some of you. What if you go? I mean, what if we lose our best and brightest? Well, let me just like process that for you. Do you really want to send our, instead of our best, our worst? Instead of our brightest, our dullest? Like, you know what? You're not doing anything here. You're theologically a train wreck. You're really not doing anything for Jesus, so let's send you over to Africa. That's horrible, right, (laughs) on so many levels. Who are we going to send? Why is mission so expensive? Because we lose horsepower here by sacrificing it for the cause of Christ among the nations. So it's super expensive. But in order for our best and our faithful and Christ-loving people to go to the nations, we're going to have to pay. They did throughout the New Testament. We're going to have to literally, financially, just dig deep if we want to do anything for the cause of Christ. I think it's true locally, too. We want to see churches started in our community. You know what would really help in global missions is having more churches that are faithful here. You know what would really help in terms of global missions is having more faithful churches there, too. You know what? Missionary churches should send missionaries. So I hope that the African churches start sending missionaries to Africa. Right? Like, isn't that what we want to see is churches reproducing churches? Where does it start? In a deep commitment that we would take what God has given to us, our own lives and our resources, and throw them into the ministry that Christ has called us to of church work. Let me just push a little bit harder on the American dream. Church is not about you, it's about Jesus Christ. Christianity is not about you, it's about Jesus Christ. He does all of this for the sake of his name. So God has called you to himself for his glory, then your grace. Right, like we get grace. But he he tells Israel really clearly, I do not save you for your sake, I save you for my name's sake. But American Christianity has turned the church into a place that tells us how to be better, do better, and live better. In other words, it's about us. And sometimes that betterment isn't wrong. But if you think the church is about you, this commission turns you on your head. This is not about you, which means when we come to this text and we individualize it, as in this text is telling me to go to my neighbor and share the gospel, that's mostly wrong but kind of true. You track with me? Like, It's about church work. Now, does church work include you sharing the gospel with your neighbor? Yes. But we've got to look at this text as an us command. God has not called you to teach all that he's commanded and to baptize people and to go to the nations, plural. Not unless you're going to live for like a couple million years. This is not a command for a single person. This is a command for us. So when it says go, our church needs to be a going church. Right? That means church planting here and sending missionaries out. Doing one to the exclusion of the other is wrong, morally disobedient. Doing neither is crazy disobedient. We must be committed to both. Okay, that was my kind of pastoring on the end as, as I was just trying to talk to Cross about, let, let's dig into this and do it.
I don't know what you have to give. Maybe you give your life and you go to the foreign field. Maybe you volunteer to help us plant our fourth or fifth church. Maybe, maybe you have some investments that are sitting there for a beach house and you say, I'm going to give that to a church plant. I don't know what the Lord has in your world that you should leverage for church work. Sacrifice it for the one who sacrificed his life for you. Come and be like Jesus. Go to be like him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Lord, this is a heavy reminder of what we are called to do. So help us not to forget the grace you supply. Knowing that just like with Joshua, when the Lord commissions his church to do his work, he doesn't tell us to go in our own power. He calls us to do so out of a deep love for our Savior, a desire to see him exalted among the nations, and a grace to get us there to accomplish these things. You have never called us to obedience in our own strength. But you give us this incredible ministry. And you call us to eternal good. And then you give us all the power and the grace to accomplish it. In this way, Father, we know that the commentary of Scripture, that to you all the glory and the honor and the praise should be given. Because beginning to end, the work of the church is about your grace. Father, I ask that you would remind us of how incredible your kindness is to Je through Jesus Christ to us. And you would remind us of how sweet a privilege it is to be forgiven. And knowing that our love for Christ should compel us to share him with the nations. Lord, I pray that no one in here would feel a burden to just do more or work harder in their own ability. But they'd be reminded because of their devotion to Christ and confidence in him that these things can be accomplished. Lord, help us to love your church like your son does. Help us to love your people like your son does. And I ask that you would help us to strengthen this church by faithfully challenging one another to go. Challenging one another to instruct others. Challenging one another to live in the presence of our Lord who supplies all of the strength for these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.